Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Magnus Nordeman, author of The New Battle for the Atlantic, Emerging Naval Competition with Russia in the Far North. Magnus Nordeman is a noted NATO expert who served as the director of the Transatlantic Security Initiative at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. His insights and commentary have been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Defense News, CNN, BBC, and MSNBC. He has lectured at NATO's Maritime Command, the U.S. Naval War College, and other military educational institutions. Magnus, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm a big fan. So your dad was a career submarine officer. How did that spark your interest in naval strategy and the North Atlantic? So it sparked because I was always around it, and I was always rubbing shoulders with uh, with folks from uh, from the submarine service. Obviously, I'm an, I'm an immigrant from Sweden, so we're talking about the Swedish submarine force here. But uh, but I've also something that struck me uh, about the submarine force that it's it's a very international crowd, um, and there's a lot of allies and partners and and international visitors that that come in and out. So so growing up, there were always people in and out of our uh, house from visiting submarines and and visiting international forces that, that were over for receptions and 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 so on at, at my house. So um, so submarines were sort of never far um, uh, from view when I was growing up. And and also uh, when I had school breaks, uh, my dad took me to work. Uh, so I actually hung out at the uh, uh, at Sweden submarine bases on a on a number of occasions. So uh, so submarines were were never far from uh, from me growing up. Um, and then, of course, that, uh, that that great late Cold War movie, Hunt for the Red October, which is one of the first movies that I actually saw in the theater. Uh, and, and I was obviously mesmerized by it. And, and that, that played a role, too. And how did this book come about? This book actually came about because of my work at the Atlantic Council directing the Transatlantic Security Initiative. Um, and I was obviously working in that position in 2014 when Russia uh, annexed Crimea from, uh, from Ukraine. Um, and I watched pretty closely the, the early or sort of initial NATO response. And a couple of things struck me by it, um, or struck me about it. One was that it was very ground-focused, um, right? So the U.S. Army started sending forces over. The U.S. Army started exercising in, in Eastern Europe. Um, the European allies started, you know, investing back into sort of heavy ground capabilities, tanks, artillery, um, and and so on. And it was also very focused on uh, northeastern Europe, Poland and the Baltic states. Now, those things were not wrong. They they were the right things to do. Um, um, but um, but to me, something was missing um, because when I was looking at where actually a lot of the friction was going on with Russian forces. Um, the close encounters at sea, uh, the uh, the flybys by Russian aviation, um, they were all happening uh, in or above the maritime domain, either in the Atlantic or the Black Sea, or the or the Baltic Sea, um, and that got me interested in so what, how does the how does the maritime uh, domain play into collective defense and deterrence in the, in the 21st century? And I thought it was 
um, underappreciated and and uh, and misunderstood. So tell me about the geography here in terms of the North Atlantic. Where does this book focus in terms of countries involved and what are the key strategic features of the area? Right. So the North Atlantic is obviously a, a, a huge place uh, and, and obviously connects uh, North, North America and Europe. Um, and, and I'm not talking about the entire North Atlantic, which obviously forms part of the, uh, you know, the, the broader um, Atlantic, which is the second largest ocean in the world. Um, what we're really talking about here is the area north of the GIUK gap, which is Greenland, Iceland, UK. And if you draw a line between them, you, you have a natural choke point in the, in the North Atlantic um, that if you want to get to Northern Europe, you have to cross it. Or if you're coming from Northern Europe or Russia, you have to, you have to cross out of it to reach the broader, the broader North Atlantic. Um, and this book really focuses on uh, the area north of the GIUK gap. So uh, the far North Atlantic, the Norwegian Sea, and, uh, um, and the Barents Sea. Um, that's a very challenging um, operating environment. Um, you don't have a lot of, uh, you don't have a lot of bases up there. Uh, so if you're in trouble, it's very hard for someone to come get you. Um, the ocean is obviously deep. It's, it's perfect for, for submarines. It's hard to, um, hard to find them up there. Um, and the distances are, of course, uh, vast as well. And how critical is the North Atlantic in terms of trade, energy, and information flows? So it's very, very critical. And I think it's one of these things that, that is often lost on people, uh, because obviously in the jet age, we don't travel by ship anymore. Um, uh, you know, previous, previous generations, if you wanted to go to, to, do, uh, to North America or Europe, you got on a ship um, and, and you came across. And therefore, um, I think people were much more aware of the importance of the, uh, of the sea. And uh, today, you know, while we may ship or fly people uh, across the North Atlantic today, um, all the stuff, um, if you will, still travels, um, you know, by, um, by ship. Um, and, and while obviously the, the Pacific region is rising um, and the economic importance of China is, is increasing, um, some of the most intense trade flows um, in the world actually still take place um, between, uh, between Europe and North America. Um, and that actually also goes for communications. Um, if you look at if you look at some of the submarine cable maps that are a bit publicly available, um, you can see that those nets are incredibly thick uh, across the Atlantic between North America and uh, and Europe. Um, and most communications um, uh, take place via those cables. Um, satellite communications is still very expensive and very slow. Uh, so something like 95% of, of global communications travel via submarine cable um, um, under the ocean uh, rather, than, rather than by satellite. Um, and then, of course, when you get to the military side of the house, um, we still don't fly most of our stuff. Um, we still ship our ammunition and our tanks and our vehicles and, and so on. I'm sure we, we, can fly, we can fly the soldiers across, um, but modern militaries, including the U.S. military, um, still, uh, still ships things um, around the world uh, to do reinforcements and exercises and and so on. So it's it's an incredible, incredibly important domain, um, but that is sort of for for the common man um, easy uh, easy to miss. And there's there's even a term that's been invented for it called sea blindness. What about oil and gas in the region? 
Um, so oil and gas is important in, in two ways. One, um, you've actually seen um, um, an incredible development of, uh, of the oil and gas industry in the far North Atlantic, really beginning in the 1970s. Uh, that's when explorations are in the North Sea and the Norwegian Sea and the, and the Barents Sea by the UK, by Norway and, and by Russia. Um, so you saw, you saw early exploration in the 1970s. Um, and then it really exploded in the late 80s in, into the 90s and, and, and on today. Um, and countries like Norway um, have really built their, built their wealth and their welfare states and, 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 their, and their modern democracies um, on access to, to oiling, uh, offshore oil and gas uh, in, the, in the far North Atlantic. Um, it's, also, it's also incredibly important to Russia, um, although Russian access obviously also goes into to their um, um, uh, their Arctic and, and, and far away from the from the Atlantic, uh, but nevertheless it's important to them. Um, there's also increasingly a U.S. angle to this, um, as the U.S. is looking to export LNG, uh, liquefied natural gas, to Europe. Um, that will not be piped. That will be shipped uh, to terminals in in Europe. So oil and gas is being extracted from the far North Atlantic, but it's it's also beginning to be a uh, 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 a shipping pathway for, for LNG from the U.S. To, to Europe as well. The first part of the book talks about wars that have touched the North Atlantic, and it pulls together several key incidents that start to highlight the strategic importance of the region. You begin with World War I, which I automatically think of the Lusitania. What are the key takeaways you found from this period of time? Um, so I actually want to step back and take, take one, one step further back and then come back to, to the 20th century, because um, I don't think this is only a, a 20th century phenomenon, although I focus mostly on this in, um, in, in my book. But I can say, you know, since, since, the, uh, since the discovery of, um, uh, of North American colonization, um, the North Atlantic has, changed, uh, has shaped conflicts on both sides of, um, um, of the Atlantic, you know, since then, really. Um, George Washington's victory at Yorktown would not have been possible if the French didn't break Royal Navy, uh, the Royal Navy sea control uh, in, the, in the North Atlantic. Um, the Spanish Empire in the Americas just, to some degree began to crumble when they could no longer guarantee access to, uh, to the Atlantic. Um, so I think this is actually uh, um, an, an enduring phenomenon in, uh, in European and, um, and American conflict. Um, but obviously, what is what is immediately um, relevant to the book that I wrote is obviously uh, World War One, uh, World War Two, and and the Cold War, um, when the North Atlantic was contested in these you know great battles, if you will, for the for the future of the um, of the European order. Um, um, and when I looked at these um, uh, three conflicts, they're they're very different. Obviously, the the play uh, the players are different, um, the scope and scale are different, um, and obviously the Cold War was not a shooting war. Um, um, as World War One and, and World War Two um, were, but I, I do think I found a couple of sort of what I call strategic constants that that hold true uh, throughout these periods. Um, one is that um, fighting in the North Atlantic uh, is extremely resource intense. Um, it takes a lot of resources, both um, um, both people and equipment, uh, and and money to do it. Uh, during World War One. Um, at one point, something like half of the Royal Navy uh, was on anti-submarine warfare duty, uh, uh, fighting off uh, German uh, German submarines. Um, American lighthouses uh, were actually drawn into uh, submarine lookouts uh, on the on the U.S. Uh, East Coast um, uh, during the war. 
Um, another part is that it, it's technology intense. Um, and actually, modern anti-submarine warfare um, in many ways, was really invented in the North Atlantic during, during World War I and then evolved further in World War II and, and, uh, and the Cold War. Um, and incredible uh, resources were expended um, on both sides, both to find submarines, but then also to make the submarines more, uh, more quiet in order to avoid um, uh, detection. Um, and then third, um, um, fighting with allies matter. Um, um, it tends to be in the in the three battles for the for the Atlantic that, um, uh, um, that the way that they are called, um, the, um, uh, the, uh, the country that fought alone tended to lose. Um, Germany were was largely alone in the Atlantic in both World, uh, World War One and World War Two, um, and obviously the Soviet Union uh, was on its own in the North Atlantic during the Cold War, um, while the Allies, while the other side managed to array um, alliance networks to. Uh, to con- control the Atlantic, so so allies really matter in in the North um, um, in the North Atlantic, um, and then uh, these are maritime struggles, uh, but the land still matters in the sense that you need bases and you need places to put sensors and support and so on and so forth. So even though we're talking about the sea, uh, the land still matters, and that's how even small countries like Iceland um, all of a sudden have um, um, have uh, have strategic strategic importance. Um, and then finally, but certainly not least, um, um, wars will not start in the North Atlantic, but they will very quickly escalate there. Um, no, no great war has ever started out in the North Atlantic. Um, it starts on the European continent, uh, but then it escalates into the North Atlantic pretty quickly thereafter. Um, and there, and um, a struggle emerges over control of the North Atlantic in order to slow reinforcements and, and keep allies um, in the in the fight, um, and with that, um, I think this is a very important point um, that um, you you will very likely not be able to win a war in the North Atlantic, but you can certainly lose it there, um, if you um, if you will. So it is uh, it is necessary to gain control of the Atlantic uh, to to achieve victory, but it's not going to do it on its own. And you mentioned you also looked at World War II a period marked by significant technological advancements and the fascinating story of the capture of the German Enigma machine. Can you tell us more about the key advancements during this conflict? Um, sure. So there was, there was a number of things. So, so one was obviously you saw the, um, the, um, you saw the introduction of the sonar, um, the, uh, which means that you, could actually, you can actually detect submarines underwater um, rather than just on the surface, which was done um, a lot of times, just using sort of your human eyeball um, during um, uh, during World War One, um, you also saw the introduction of the radio, um, um, or um, which meant that you could uh, you could coordinate submarine movements over over much larger uh, much larger uh, distances, um, and this was obviously something that um, uh, that the Germans used for their wolf pack tactics, where basically you could assemble submarines. Um, uh, at vast distances to attack convoys um, and so on. Um, and then you also saw the, uh, the advent of airborne um, ASW, where you could start using, uh, start using airplanes um, to hunt for submarines. And again, um, this is where Iceland comes in as, a, as an aircraft carrier in the middle of the North Atlantic um, that the Allies could use to, uh, to conduct anti-submarine warfare patrols. Um, in the North Atlantic, over over much further distances 
uh, and much faster than you could with surface ships. Moving into the Cold War period, you describe lessons from World War II being turned into tactical and strategic decisions, as well as the creation of NATO. How did these things impact the North Atlantic? So obviously, so the um, the Cold War began relatively shortly after the end of the uh, after the uh, after end of World War II. Um, so a lot of um, a lot of people had uh, the battle for the North Atlantic, uh, um, you know, fresh in their minds because they may have uh, they may have even uh, even participated in it. Um, and this is this is true both for the Allied side, but also for the um, also for the the, uh, the, the Soviet side. Um, the Soviets very much took away that they were um, uh, that they were actually exposed um, um, and that their navy had actually not done very well uh, during uh, during World War II um, and uh, and that their fleet bases on the Kola Peninsula up in northern Russia uh, on the Barents Sea were were actually um, were actually exposed to um, to to invasion. Um, so the Soviets uh, started a crash program to build submarines. Um, a lot of them based on German designs so that they had captured um, after um, uh, after the end of, of World War II. Uh, so, so the Soviet Navy really became a submarine navy, if you will, to to a degree that it, uh, to an extent that it is today as well. Um, on the Allied side, on the other hand, um, I think um, I think they saw the the need for alliances and the need for bases. Um, um, so the maritime side of NATO uh, was very much focused on. Having a permanent presence um, on Iceland, um, uh, working closely with Norway, um, um, and in, in order to establish maritime defense in the far North Atlantic, um, and then creating a barrier strategy for um, uh, for defense of the GIU, GIUK gap, in order not to let the Soviets out uh, into the broader North Atlantic in case of war. The second section of the book focuses on peacetime beginning with the breakup of the USSR and the impact on the Soviet fleet. Can you tell us more about that? In many ways, the, what I call the, the era of peace is, is in many ways, looking at from where we, where we stand today, it's almost a shame um, because you actually did see a lot of promising cooperation between the U.S. and NATO on the one hand um, and the new Russia on the other hand, um, and especially on the, on the mill-mill uh, side. Um, um, to start off with, um, the Russians had a huge problem on their hands decommissioning all the nuclear submarines uh, that they had produced and maintained uh, during the Cold War, but that, that were now sitting rusting uh, on the Kola Peninsula and, uh, and in other places. Um, a huge, uh, a huge challenge in terms of uh, taking care of nu- uh, nuclear fuel um, and con- uh, contaminated equipment and, um, and so on. Um, um, and they they actually received some assistance from countries like Norway uh, and to some degree from the United States to uh, to do that decommissioning. Um, the same period also actually saw um, search and rescue exercises and maritime security exercises between the U.S. Navy and the Russian Navy in the in the far North Atlantic. And, and there were actually um, um, U.S. surface ships that actually went to the Kola Peninsula. Um, on on naval visits um, the, um, as a, as a confidence building measure. Um, uh, so, in many ways, looking at where we are today, it's, it's almost uh, it's almost a shame um, because it was probably one of the regions where you actually did see a lot of direct military to military cooperation um, between the, between the two former enemies. Tell us what happened with the Kursk and how that impacted the Russian Navy. 
Sure. So the um, uh, the Kursk was um, um, was one of Russia's latest submarines that were that were going out on exercises in in 2000. Um, had an accident with its um, uh, with its torpedoes, uh, which blew up uh, blew up in the torpedo room and, and actually sank uh, sank the ship or sank the submarine with with all hands uh, all hands lost. Um, 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 this became a huge embarrassment to Putin. Um, he was relatively new in his uh, in his position at the, uh, at this time, um, and when he actually went and visited the families, he he actually got yeared at um, the, uh, by um, uh, by the relatives and, and, and families, and it, it proved to be um, proved to be a public embarrassment for uh, for Putin. Uh, and it's interesting to note that he hasn't done that kind of public engagement uh, since that time. So I think that's one of the lessons. Um, that he drew from it. Um, but I think also that on the Russian side, the Kursk served as a little bit of a wake-up call for, uh, for the Russian Navy, uh, that they still had problems and uh, they needed to do something in order to stand back up um, their, uh, stand back up their submarine force. Um, I think on the Western side, um, um, at first there was shock that the Russians refused a lot of Western help. Um, the, um, to see if they could rescue the uh, the Kursk uh, crew, um, and that was taken as confirmation that that the Russians were still in their old in their old ways of of denials and and hiding um, hiding mistakes. And then also, I think the Kursk served as an example or or as a as a lesson um, uh, that the Russians had gotten nowhere uh, in restoring their naval power. Um, after the uh, uh, after the end of the uh, end of the Cold War, um, and, it, and it seems that that was actually the wrong lesson to draw from the from the Kursk disaster. Do you see long term impacts on Russian military strategy from that incident? Um, not so much. Um, so in, in in the sense that I think it was a wake up call that things are not going well, um, and um, um, and we have to do we have we have to do new things in terms of um, new leadership. Uh, more resources and 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 so on. So I, I don't I don't see a change in their in from this incident. I don't see a change in their in their tactics or or strategy. Um, uh, but nevertheless, it, it's a wake up call uh, that things were not that things were not well um, with with personnel and with technology uh, inside the Russian submarine force before the year two thousand. So it served as a wake up call. We've seen increased activity in the region. How has that impacted strategy and operations for different partners operating in the North Atlantic? So again, so I think what we especially see a lot more activity of um, are Russian submarines. Um, and I think it's important to look at um, what the Russian Navy is trying to do. Um, I think one of, the, um, um, one of the most frequent mistakes that Western observers do um, is that they assume that the Russians are trying to be us. Uh, that they are trying to mirror something like the U.S. Navy or the Royal Navy um, or what have you. And then, you know, we're talking power projection and aircraft carriers and amphibious capabilities and, um, and, and so on. Um, my, my point is that the Russians are not trying to be us. They're trying to beat us. Um, and that means that the emphasis is not at all on aircraft carriers or amphibious capabilities and, and so on. Um, the emphasis is on submarines um, because um, submarines is is one way um, where a uh, where an inferior navy uh, can actually beat a stronger navy, and that's actually what we have here. Uh, all, all in all, 
Um, the U.S. Navy and the navies of NATO are, are far superior, both in terms of numbers and, and capabilities, uh, broadly defined, are far superior to those of, of the Russian one. Um, but that doesn't mean that the Russians can't use innovation uh, um, um, or, uh, um, um, or get at scenes where, where, uh, where NATO is, uh, is not strong. Um, and one way to do that in the maritime domain is to use submarines. I think what we're seeing specifically is a, is a whole lot more of, uh, of the, uh, Russian submarine activity uh, in the North Atlantic. I want to reference a line that you wrote in the primer on submarines towards the beginning of the book. You say, if a nation could design, build, and maintain submarines, it belongs to a small and exclusive group of the world's most technologically sophisticated and competent countries. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of the submarine and why it's so complicated in terms of operations that led you to frame it in that way? So, so submarines, it's actually, it's um, among submarine engineers, it's, it's not infrequent um, uh, that they compare to what they do with, uh, to a spaceship. Um, in a sense, if you think about the environment that a, that a submarine operates in, um, it's extremely forbidding uh, and it is extremely lethal. Um, so the, uh, so the precision, uh, the precision that you need, the technology that you need to um, uh, to survive and operate um, in that environment uh, um, uh, needs to needs to be top notch. Um, and then it's a it's an incredibly complicated system um, with propulsion and weapons and command and control. And um, um, uh, you need things for people to live in the submarines. Um, so that means that you need to have a huge maintenance network uh, with uh, with ports and yards and expertise uh, expertise to sustain um, sustain the submarine. So it's not only about building the submarine; it's then to sort of to keep it to keep it operational uh, and and relevant into the future. Um, and if you look at the if you look across the world today, um, there may be there may be six or seven uh, nations that, that that you can say. Um, are um, uh, are able to independently um, build and maintain and and operate submarines, um, um, and that that sort of puts you in the in the same category of the small handful of nations that that can um, uh, that can operate serious space programs. So, given the complexity of this type of craft and your lesson from the periods of conflict that to be successful in this region, you can't operate alone. How does the complexity of operating submarines and technologically sophisticated naval crafts translate into NATO operations in the post-Cold War period and coordination of all these various support pieces that you just mentioned? Um, so that's a great question. Um, and I think if you, if you look back to the Cold War when, when NATO did this, um, um, NATO evolved its uh, uh, what I call its its its, uh, its maritime network uh, in the North Atlantic, you know, from the beginning all the way until you know 1991 in terms of um, uh, sensor networks and bases and exercises and command and control uh, and and planning and um, and so on. Um, 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 so it never stood still, and it was it was always this sort of ongoing. Uh, ongoing and learning and doing for for NATO navies to to do this well. Um, and one of my contentions in the book is that NATO sort of walked away from this. 
um, after the after the Cold War, um, uh, because the alliance got busy with other things. It got busy with the Balkans. It got busy with Afghanistan, um, uh, and it got busy with with counter piracy and counter terrorism at sea um, in places like Horn of Africa and uh, and the uh, and the Mediterranean. Um, so a lot of these skills and a lot of this knowledge um, um, was actually was actually forgotten um, and sort of left to the left to the history books, if you um, if you will. Um, so I think what we're seeing now is actually NATO looking to recapture some of this uh, and and reestablishing that maritime uh, maritime network in in the North Atlantic. Um, that's not going to come um, 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 over. That's not going to come back overnight. Um, uh, because it takes a long time to learn. You will need to do a lot of practicing um, um, and you will need to do a lot of, for lack of a better term, tinkering when you set up your command and control structures and, and what, you, what you need to do. So, so in that sense, it's a, um, it's a really interesting time to be watching NATO in the North Atlantic um, uh, because, once again, the alliance is, is, is trying out those muscle movements again for the first time in almost 30 years. And that really segues to the last section of the book where you're looking at the current period of contest. What events signaled the return of competition in the North Atlantic? Um, well, as I said, this, you know, um, um, this all comes about because of events that are pretty far from the North Atlantic. Um, um, this really starts with the annexation of Crimea by Russia in, in 2014, uh, which is very far from the North Atlantic indeed. Um, Others would certainly say. Uh, others would certainly point to the to the war with Georgia in in, in 2008. Um, although not not very many people seem to have been paying attention to it. So, so I think the the conventional wisdom is that uh, 2014 marks the year um, um, when when Russia and uh, and NATO and the U.S. entered back into uh, into competition over the over the future of uh, future of Europe. Um, and as I said when I began. Um, um, the first sort of initial NATO reaction was very ground focused um, um, and, and sought to uh, sought to fill some urgent holes um, um, that were exposed in in Poland and the Baltic states in terms of NATO presence and uh, and conventional deterrence. Um, um, but then people started um, thinking a bit more broadly and, and, and raising the rise of the horizon and noticed that there was this maritime domain. Um, that NATO relies on, uh, just as it did during the Cold War, uh, for for reinforcements uh, um, across across the Atlantic. Um, so again, I think in this new competition between Russia and NATO, um, the Atlantic is 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 set to fill its traditional role of, of being that uh, be, being that mega highway um, uh, between uh, between North America and Europe that will keep allies in the fight. Um, and flow reinforcements from from the U.S. into Europe in case of a crisis. You mentioned in the book, in 2014 alone, there were more than 27 incidents of close encounters between Russian warships and aircraft in the maritime domain in northern Europe. Can you talk a little bit more about what's happening there? We've seen a spike um, in, in in close encounters, and that, that is... Um, 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 there are various examples of when Russian warships or uh, or aircraft um, have have maneuvered uh, very very close to um, to NATO warships or or NATO aircraft, um, and especially um, U.S. ones. The, the USS Donald Cook um, uh, seems to be of special interest to Russian forces, both in the Black Sea and uh, and the Baltic. And there, there are plenty of 
of videos out on the internet of um, uh, that the U.S. Navy has released uh, of Russian aircraft come, uh, going by the, the Donald Cook uh, in in very close uh, very close proximity. Um, and this is obviously a, a part of signaling in great power competition. Um, the Russians are trying to tell the U.S. Navy and, and NATO to um, um, to get to get out of the area um, that that NATO and the U.S. are, are not appreciated in uh, in the Baltic and uh, and the Black Sea. So this is clearly Russian signaling to to NATO uh, and vice versa. Uh, remaining there or, or coming back is clearly signaling from NATO and the United States. Um, uh, that, that NATO and the U.S. considers the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea to be of interest to um, to the alliance. Um, we saw a lot of this during the Cold War um, as well. Um, um, they are, I think, one should think about it in the sense of that it's, they are indeed serious incidents, um, but in some ways also the norm of great power competition when there's a need to when there's a need to signal. Uh, um, intent and uh, and and red lines. Um, I think they should always be taken seriously. Um, uh, but on the other hand, um, an incident does not necessarily, or probably most likely, uh, will not lead to war. There were there were a number of, there were a number of horrific accidents um, involving Soviet and uh, and U.S. and NATO warships and, and aircraft during the Cold War. Um, and they obviously did it did not lead to World War three, uh, and they they could be managed. You mentioned before some of the communication cables through this region. What vulnerabilities currently lie there in terms of communications in general and strategic communications between NATO allies? so so the submarine cables are important for two reasons. One, they simply carry most of the communications between North America and um, and Europe. Um, but they also serve a secondary purpose that that um, that important oil and offshore oil and gas industry that we talked about earlier uh, in this podcast. Uh, they're also controlled by submarine cables, um, um, so they they are needed to to monitor and control um, the, uh, the oil and gas extraction out in the out in the far North Atlantic. Um, so um, um, on the one hand, um, they are of interest because you can do some great intelligence gathering that way um, uh, by simply by finding the cables and, and plugging in. Um, you can learn a lot, uh, both from government and uh, in commercial communications flowing, flowing through there. Um, uh, but also in a, in a crisis, um, you can, of course, disrupt communications, um, which would quickly become a, become a problem, um, both for military operations, but then also for uh, for commercial interest um, um, as well. Um, obviously, the the thickness of the of the submarine cable networks have you know, have grown considerably since the introduction of of the internet. Um, but this is actually not um, completely unheard of. But uh, one of the first moves by the British at the beginning of World War II was to sever German submarine communication cables to uh, to their outposts in the in the German sphere. Um, it was called the, it was called the cable wars, uh, and this happened uh, in in late 19, 1914. Um, um, obviously, in comparison today uh, to today, that that was a pretty unsophisticated attack. They they simply hauled the cables up to a ship and chopped them off with an axe and threw the threw the ends back in the ocean. Um, and that's not what we're talking about um, uh, talking about today, of course. Um, um, uh, but it's not it's not unheard of um, uh, to disrupt submarine cable communications in uh, in in times of conflict. 
So what we're seeing overall, is this a continued pattern of competition or are there differences that signal a need for new approaches in the, new, in the North Atlantic? So I think there are some major differences with this new battle, battle for the Atlantic. Um, first, if you look, um, going back to, if you look at the Russian, uh, if you look at the Russian Navy, um, on paper, um, it is far inferior to the U.S. Navy uh, and, to the, and to the NATO Navy. Um, um, but that actually means that the Russians are applying a, bit of, uh, applying a bit of innovation and thinking about the resources they have at hand and what they can do with them. Um, so the traditional battle of the Atlantic, where we talked about having submarines go into the North Atlantic to sink shipping and, and, and so on, um, I don't think that's part of the, the sort of realistic scenarios today, um, if, if for no other reason that the Russian submarine force is far too small to do that. Um, um, what I think um, uh, the Russian strategy is developing to be is using submarines for standoff cruise missile strikes. Um, and if you do that, you actually don't have to go very far into the North Atlantic. You can actually stay well, well north of the GIUK gap. Um, and reach uh, airports, um, seaports, command and control nodes um, um, all across northern Europe uh, with, uh, with cruise missile attacks. And this is obviously a mode of operation um, that the Russians have already demonstrated in Syria, uh, where they have used submarines in the Mediterranean to launch cruise missiles um, um, into, um, into Syria. So this is a demonstrated, demonstrated capability um, and very much in line um, with the Russian strategy of seeking to deter the U.S. or NATO from intervening uh, when Russia operates in its, uh, in its near, uh, near abroad. What recommendations would you make both for NATO more broadly and the United States? So I have a couple of um, I have a couple of uh, recommendations or, or really questions that I that I end uh, that I end my book with, and these I think are, are questions that. Um, that NATO and the U.S. need to find the right answers to. And then if we find those right answers, um, then I think we're on our way um, to, a pretty, to a pretty healthy strategy. Um, so the first question is, you know, what is the challenge in the North Atlantic? And this ties back to, to your previous question. Um, if the challenge is not the Russian Navy coming out to, um, coming out to sink uh, shipping in the North Atlantic, but instead using submarines to, to launch cruise missiles, uh, at targets in in northern Europe, what what does what does a NATO and U.S. strategy look like um, to prevent that? Um, the second question is who's who's on the NATO team? And again, going back to there was a larger maritime network that was developed during the during Cold War that included um, uh, the U.S., Canada, Iceland, U.K., Denmark, Germany, France, Norway, um, and so on that all played a a particular role in the North Atlantic. What we're seeing today is um, the U.S., the U.K., and Norway being the three NATO countries that have really engaged on the on the North Atlantic issue. Um, but I think if, if NATO wants to reestablish that that broader maritime network, there needs to be a conversation on who who's on the Atlantic team, um, um, and it certainly needs to be larger than just the U.S., the U.K., um, and uh, in Norway. Um, and the third question. Um, who are the who are the players in the North Atlantic? Um, and again, that has also changed from what it was like during uh, during World War One, World War Two, and and the Cold War, where basically all of the players in the Atlantic were Atlantic nations. Um, today, we're also seeing the introduction of China, 
um, that is um, uh, that is beginning to to see um, uh, to see uh, uh, national interest in the in the broader North Atlantic. You, you're seeing Chinese interest in the Arctic. Um, you're seeing um, uh, Chinese naval exercises in the Medi- uh, Mediterranean and the Black Sea. Uh, and we've actually seen the Chinese Navy all the way up in the Baltic. Um, so you have this new new geopolitical actor in the North Atlantic that NATO and the U.S. needs to needs to think about. Um, my point here is not that we're going to fight China in the North Atlantic, um, but I think it is important to recognize that there is a there is a new um, new veneer of, of geopolitics in the North Atlantic, uh, or of global geopolitics in the North Atlantic, with with China as an actor. Um, uh, that needs to be taken into account. Um, and then finally, um, what are some of the new technologies that can be brought to bear um, to, uh, to defend the, the, uh, the North Atlantic? You're beginning to see reinvestment um, um, in, um, in the UK, in the US, in, in Norway, uh, and in Germany and, and, and other places. Um, and that's, that's, a great, that's a great first step. Um, but then also there, um, um, there's, a, there's a range of new technologies coming into the field that can be used for uh, anti-submarine warfare. So autonomous systems, um, uh, big data, um, artificial intelligence, and so on. And, and how, how can those technologies be leveraged um, to, uh, uh, to defend the North Atlantic and, and to do anti-submarine warfare? in the 21st century. So that's my, that's my set of four questions that I think NATO and the U.S. need to find good answers to um, in order to develop a, a solid strategy for the North Atlantic. Well, Magnus, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, could you tell us about what you're working on now? So right now I'm taking a little bit of a break, but I, I have a couple of ideas of things that I would like to, to look at in the, in the future. Um, one is actually America's relationship with NATO um, um, historically and, and moving forward, um, which to me to me seems relevant uh, given given some of the given some of the turbulence in the U.S. relationship with uh, um, its its most important um, important alliance. Um, so that's something that that has caught my interest and uh, uh, and that I'm doing some uh, some research on. Um, um, and then also um, a second one that has caught my interest to some degree because of because of this book and something that I that I that I want to get a little deeper on it and perhaps write write on in the future um, are these um, um, geographical in between places, um, if you will, in in the world and, uh, and and how they work. Places like Svalbard in the far north Atl- uh, far north Atlantic. Um, uh, places like the Falklands Islands um, um, or, uh, uh, or Guantanamo um, um, on Cuba, where there are where there are sort of unique and exotic uh, political arrangements for for sovereignty and, and control, um, and that is something that has, that has caught my interest uh, uh, here in recent months, and that I want to do some work on. Well, best of luck with those projects, and thanks for being on the show today. Thank you so much. It's been great. The new battle for the Atlantic. Emerging Naval Competition with Russia and the Far North by Magnus Nordman is available now from Naval Institute Press. Thank you for listening to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.